Welcome to the Damon Parker Podcast. On today's episode, you will hear part two of a series of teachings on how I came to an affirming view of same-sex relationships. In this lesson, we take a look at what the Bible has to say about sex and think about how we should respond. Just so you know, we will be talking very directly about sexual matters. As always, I hope you are moved, and thanks for listening. I want to begin tonight with a brief, very brief review from our last gathering and then talk about where we're going to head tonight. Uh, if you were here for the last time we, we talked, then you'll remember that I shared my journey, uh, primarily my journey with Scripture, how um, over the course of really about 30 years or so, uh, my view of what Scripture does, uh, how it accomplishes things, what its purpose is, how that has changed and uh, my beliefs about that and how that has affected me and changed me and that sort of thing. And as I mentioned a while ago, you can, you can listen to that if you, if you would like to. But in that journey, uh, there are certain things that stand out that really affected me at the time in, in pretty immense ways. I'll give you a for instance. As I was making that journey with Scripture and kind of coming to some different conclusions about what Scripture does, I was very concerned about some of the things that the Bible has often been used to promote about race. And I was, uh, during a lot of this, at a, in a church that was, uh, the vast majority of the church uh, did not look like me. Um, and so, I, I, that was a grave concern. And so, as my view of Scripture was kind of uh, growing and changing, I spent a lot of time studying about that. And then I became very concerned about the way the church was treating women. And I spent a lot of time studying about that and, and rethinking that and, and looking at Scripture and tradition and what we do and how we think in light of my changing view of Scripture. But I'll be honest that during all of that, sexual identity or sexuality uh, was not a concern. It just wasn't something I was even thinking about. And so I didn't spend a lot of time on uh, passages about that in Scripture. I, I was interested and concerned about other things. But, uh, one day a few years ago, I was studying and reading, and I came across a verse that is a, I don't want to say it's a throwaway verse, because no verse in the Bible is a throwaway verse, and I don't mean to sound like that, but uh, one of those verses you just kind of, typically, I had typically just kind of flown by, and it struck me, and I'm going to read it to you. This is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. It says this, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, I had heard that scripture, read or glanced at it in the Bible most of my life. 
But something struck me about it different, strange. I suddenly felt like, for the first time in my life, I didn't understand it. I'm going to read you another verse that I then looked up because it said something similar. And this is a verse that we read towards the end of last week. This is from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 15. It says, The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. If you remember, this is where they've had a council in Jerusalem decide, what are we going to do with Gentiles coming into the church? It says, Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. Because they were trying to convince them to become Jews. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burn you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. I read these two verses and I realized something. And what I realized was I'd been reading the Bible for a long time. I had gone through an undergraduate program in biblical studies. I had a Master's of Divinity. And I did not know what the Bible meant when it used the word sexual immorality. I didn't know what that meant. Now, I knew what it meant. I had always known what it meant, right? There's, I just knew. But what I realized was I didn't know what the people who wrote this, what they meant when they said it. I had a view, but I hadn't gotten that view from the Bible. I had gotten that view by people saying, oh, the Bible says... Avoid sexual immorality, and let me tell you what that is. Don't do this, don't do that. This is okay, this is not. But I began to think, where did that come from? How did I get that view? Now, if you read these verses, and if you go back and read the context of the ones in 1 Corinthians, it appears that there seems to be some association in these verses between idol worship and sexual immorality. Both of them are talking about this in the context of doing things in around idol worship. Everything else in this verse, meat sacrificed to idols, eating strangled meat, blood, this all has to do with idol worship. And idol worship often had a sexual component. But that's not even my point tonight. My point is that we know what sexual morality is because we have been told. So now I'm going to, now this is a, this is now, this is the only warning shot you're getting tonight, but I want to tell you from this point forward, I'm going to say some things, some words that sometimes we avoid in church. Okay. But if we're going to talk about sex, we can't pretend like we're not talking about sex. Okay? So, uh, any snickering? Here we go. So, for instance, I read these verses, and I asked questions like this. Sexual immorality is bad. Okay. Does that mean masturbation is wrong? I don't know. It doesn't tell me in this verse. What about touching another person 
but not having intercourse. Is that wrong? Is that sexually immoral? If it is, what about kissing? Is that wrong? Is that sexually immoral? Now, or how about this? As I began to study this, I have discovered that the ancient Jewish idea of sexual immorality often included the idea that any sex should be procreative. In other words, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And so sex should be for the purpose of having children. And so we still see that some today. For instance, in the Catholic Church, right? Um, Catholic Church still, the official teaching of the Catholic Church is there's a prohibition against using birth control. Why? Because sex should be procreative. Now, for a Catholic, it is immoral to use birth control. So, when some people read this text, the one I just read about fleeing from sexual immorality, when they read this, one of the things that they hear when they hear those words is, don't use birth control. But I bet most of us in this room don't hear that. And I begin to ask the question, why? Why do I not hear those words, but yet other people are convinced that that's what it means? Then I begin to look, and I look more. And I found it interesting. Paul talks about how you shouldn't go to a temple and have sex with a prostitute. Okay? What's interesting is, he doesn't say, well, obviously you don't do that because sex outside of marriage is wrong. We all know that. That's not his argument. His argument is, you're a member of the church. How dare would you not a member of the church with a member uh, with a temple prostitute? That's just wrong. Wait, he doesn't have to say that, right? They all know that sex outside of marriage is just wrong. Isn't that what they read when they heard sexual immorality? Apparently they didn't. Because they didn't read this the same way I read it, and I wasn't reading it the same way a Catholic was reading it. And suddenly, I'll be honest, it felt a little shaky. And here's why. The Bible is complicated when it comes to sexual morality. It is complicated. And much of what the Bible has to say about sex is wrapped up in culture. For instance, one of the reasons we don't think about going to a temple prostitute being sexually immoral is we don't have temple prostitutes. Right? So it's not a part of our culture, so of course we don't read that into this. But Paul was trying to get the Corinthians to read that into this. So, let's talk about the Bible, culture, and sex. Here we go. This should be fun. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. That is, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. 
Now I can go on and read some more about that, what you do when someone is unwilling to do that. But do you understand what this verse is asking the Israelites to do? If your brother dies and he never had a child, if you're his brother, you are to have sex with his wife so that she can have a baby that is now not yours, it's his. And this was not immoral. You're having sex outside of your marriage. In fact, it says something interesting. It says, Brother shall go into her, now we know what that means, and take her as his wife. In other words, if you already have a wife, now you got two. This verse calls for polygamy in the case of your brother dying without a son who can inherit his name and his place in Israel. I'll read another one. Uh, there are several places in the Old Testament, including Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 15, that prohibits, strictly prohibits, any sexual intercourse during the seven days of the menstrual period. And anyone who is in violation of this is to be cut off from their people, which typically meant either execution or expulsion. So you're not allowed. It is against everything that is holy to have sex while your wife is menstruating. And those are the easy ones. I'm now going to read from Deuteronomy 22. And every time I read this, I am amazed this is in the Bible. If a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name saying... I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders at the gate proof that she was a virgin. Her father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he has slandered her and said, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin, but here is the proof of my daughter's virginity. Then her parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. It doesn't tell us what the punishment is, except for this. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the young woman's father. Because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife. He must not divorce her as long as he lives. If, however, the charge is true and no proof the young woman's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help. And the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. 
But if out in the country a man happens to meet a young woman, pledged to be married, and rapes her, only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the woman. She has committed no sin deserving death. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders a neighbor. For the man found the young woman out in the country, and though he, though the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to rescue her. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and they are discovered, he shall pay her father fifty shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. A man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. Now, I want you to notice something here. Several things. First, in the case of the virgin being slandered by this other man, the burden of proof is on the woman. And specifically, the burden of proof is on her father. They must prove that she is a virgin. They must prove it, or else she will be killed. If they cannot prove it, the man will not be killed for what he has said. I mean, if they can prove it, the man will not be killed for what he said. But if they can't prove it, she will be killed right at her father's door. I want you to notice this. There are a couple of things there. One... This is about the two men, right? This is about this father and the husband. She has almost nothing to do with this. He, the new husband, has dishonored the father because he presented a virgin. Or the father has dishonored this man because he claimed she was a virgin when she was not. But notice what isn't here. There's all this about what happens if a virgin, and if she's not a virgin, and what shall we do, and if she is a virgin, but if the guy says she's not, there's all this stuff. And yet, there is not one thing here about him being a virgin that is inconsequential. Then we move down. There is the case of a man sleeping with another man's wife In the Old Testament, this is the definition of adultery. It is not about his status. It never tells whether he's married or not. It's just that she belongs to another man. It says he has dishonored not her, but her husband. In the case of the virgin, he's in trouble for violating another man. And when she's in the town and she is raped, right? It says he's in trouble for violating another man. She's in trouble for not doing enough to prevent it. But, if he rapes a virgin who is not betrothed, in other words, she's not engaged then he must pay her father. And she must marry him. And then the last in this line of thoughts is that a man should not marry his father's wife. Why? Because it dishonors his father. 
Now, I could hit more of these things, and if we need to, we can. But let's notice what is striking about many of the verses that we find in the Old Testament. Number one, it is a definitive patriarchal structure of life. The men are in charge. It is about the men. Uh, It is written towards the men. It is about men. Added to that, it is an honor and shame culture. The problem with these sins is that you are dishonoring another man. You don't do that. You don't take what belongs to another man. Three, there is a real disgust in the Old Testament with bodily fluids. A real disgust with bodily fluids. It makes you unclean. And there's an emphasis. We see this in the, uh, the marriage rules for if your brother dies. There's an emphasis on procreation and children. The, what we're trying to do here is, pro, is continue the family line, continue the name in, in Israel. And it is into all of this, this view of sexuality, that we must read anything we want to know from the Bible about sexuality, sexual identity, or same-sex attraction. This is the culture in which those words reside. And we cannot pretend that they don't. Uh, And so, um, you're going to find something striking now when we move to some of the verses that uh, have typically been used to talk about homosexuality. Leviticus 18. Uh, I'm going to read a couple things from it. There's a long list of do nots. I'm not going to read them all. It's too many. Uh, Well, there's a bunch. Um, Here we go. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife. Born to your father. She is your sister. It's trying to explain all the people you're not allowed to have sex with. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative, right? He's explaining, like, these are people you should not end up having sex with. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife. And there's all these things. So there's this long list of the people you are not to have sex with because it brings dishonor. And towards the end of this list, it says this. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable, or the word we used to use, that is an abomination. Uh, And then Leviticus 20. This is the other place in the Old Testament that talks about this. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable before God. Now, I want you again to notice something. Now, I'm sure we've heard these verses before, right? These are, these are verses we've heard to talk about this. But I want you to notice something in light of the cultural thing we have already seen from just talking about sex and sexuality in general. And that is, notice these passages are about men. Nowhere in the Old Testament, not once, does it say anything about women having sex with women. Not once. Because that wasn't their concern. Their concern was the honor 
of men. And therefore, we have this prohibition about sex, lying down with a man as you would with a woman. Now, this is where probably some of us may part ways, and that's okay. I don't mean like we're going to leave each other. I just mean like we might diverge a little bit. In studying this intensely for about the past six years, um, in reading these verses in light of the other verses in the Bible that talk about sexuality, when you look especially at the Old Testament, and we'll turn to the New in a minute, but when you look at the Old Testament, it seems fairly clear that the sexual rules are about one thing, and that is protecting the honor of men. And that is it. Even if you get to the very last of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember the last Ten Commandments? It, it's the one we don't hardly ever say because it's the one we do. Right? Do not covet. Right? But it doesn't say just do not covet. Most of them are very short. They say like do not kill. Or do not steal. What? It says do not covet. And then it gives you a list of things you're not covet. Do not covet your neighbor's and it lists all these things. Their house, their horse, their all this stuff. And one of the things you are not to covet, covet of them is their wife. Why? Because that's his property, not your property. This was the predominant view of women in that culture. And I'm not talking about in Jewish culture. I'm talking about across the board. When you read, when you read, about laws and cultures in other places besides ancient Israel. What you see almost across the board is a patriarchal society that was concerned about the honor of men. And whenever sex was talked about, the things that were prohibited were things to do with taking things from another man, specifically often their wife. You did not dishonor another man by stealing their woman. And so, as I studied this, I began to have this creeping sensation within me that, wow, there is a lot of culture going on here in this stuff. Uh, there's two words. One word we often use is just morals, right? There's morals. There's rights and wrong and, and what you should do. And, but there's another word that we don't often use, and that word is mores. You know the word mores? M-O-R-E-S? We don't, it always, you know, it's not mores. Um, mores. And that is just kind of a cultural understanding of this is what's acceptable and this is what's not. And I think what you see often coming through in this type of scripture is these are our mores. This is what's acceptable and this is what's not. Um, where I grew up, for instance, it wasn't a law, but one of the basic rules for children was yes ma'am and no ma'am. If you grew up in East Texas in the 1970s, you said yes ma'am or no ma'am. Trust me, you said yes ma'am or no ma'am. Now, it wasn't a law. No one could turn to a place in the Bible and say, here's where it says, say yes, ma'am. It was a moray. This is what we do here. And it's really not questioned. This is just, hey, as a matter of fact, 
the question was that one kid who didn't say it. Like, what's wrong with him? Aren't his parents terrible? Because he doesn't say yes, ma'am. But it wasn't a rule. It wasn't something moral. It was just a cultural understanding of this is how things work. I remember when I was, um, I guess I was 13 or 14, we went on a trip and we went, um, I had rarely ventured outside of East Texas in my life. And we went on a trip. We went up, uh, drove across the United States, went up through Tennessee, Virginia, spent some time in Washington, D.C., went up to Philadelphia, spent a couple days there, went to New York, eventually ended up at Niagara Falls. We, it was like a journey across America. It was great. I loved it. But I got to New York, and I ran into kids, and they didn't talk like me. And I'm not just talking about their accent. Like, they didn't say things the way I said. But what they were saying was acceptable where they were. They just lived in a different culture. I actually had a girl ask me, on the ferry going out to the Statue of Liberty, I ran into a girl, she's about my age, and we were talking, she's from New York and I'm from Texas, and she asked me if I had an oil well in my yard. (laughs) Oil well in my yard. And I said, no. And she goes, oh, doesn't everybody? And I said, no. And she said, oh, do you ride a horse? No. Where's your boots? I don't own any. Like, but she had this vision, right? This is how things are there. This kind of culture. There's this idea of culture. And I had an idea about New York, right? My idea, now some of you aren't going to get this, a few of you will, was that they were all like Vinnie Barbarino, okay? From Welcome Back, Cotter, okay? They were all, you know, they were all sweat hogs. That's um, what, what they were like. And they weren't. But they had a cultural understanding of what was acceptable and what isn't in everyday life that was different than mine. And those are mores. And what you see, I think, filtering out of these verses is a lot of that. There's a lot of culture here. A lot of this is just how things go. This is what makes society work. This is what what we're used to. This is what makes sense to us here and now. And so, I had this kind of cultural baggage, you might almost say. Like, oh no, it kind of scared me, to be honest, when I first discovered this. But so I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll turn to the New Testament, right? Which has typically been kind of our cultural idea. The Old Testament is good, but often not understandable and doesn't completely apply you turn to the New Testament to settle the issue. And so I turned to the New Testament to settle the issue. And here's what I discovered. First, Jesus does not address this particular subject. In fact, Jesus rarely talks about sex or marriage. So, you got to turn to your old friend, Paul. So I did. I turned to Paul. And I read a couple of verses. A couple of common verses. Verses that you've heard. And one is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And one is from 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I read them. And I read them in several different translations. And I won't go into all of it. But I'll read a little bit. Um... Here is 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. And he goes on and on, the covetous drunkards. I'm not sure I know what that all means. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Begin to read this. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and for the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars. You begin going through the different... um, translations of these texts and what you discover is this we translate the words here a lot of different ways as a matter of fact these verses where we typically find the word nor homosexuals was not translated that way until the 1950s um and there's a reason for that and i'm not now please hear this i'm not because i think this is a, a, a bad thing to do to people I'm not going to run a bunch of Greek words at you and pretend like I know what I'm talking about, okay? Um, but there are a couple of Greek words here that we struggle to translate, and here's why. Because they don't appear anywhere else in the Bible. When they only appear once, what's your context for that word? We don't know. And it struggles. So, you get it translated like this. Effeminate. Men-stealers. Here's another one, effeminate, kidnappers of men. Here we have homosexuals and kidnappers and liars. Here we have, here's one way it's translated, self-indulgent. Well, that's very different. And then, uh, several places you see the word sodomites. Um, And I could go through, I've got about, I don't know, 25 different translations here. But what I discovered in, in, in reading through these is, oh my goodness, we're not even sure what this says. And yet, we are using it along with a couple of verses from the Old Testament that are very culturally dominated to make some pretty severe distinctions about human beings. Let's talk a little bit about the cultural situation of these two verses. Um, While we are not, uh, while the cultural situation, at least the, we can see a lot about Israel and how they're talking, we can see the patriarchy kind of flowing out of the words. When we get to these New Testament verses, Paul is writing to people, a lot of whom were not Jews and have never been Jews. And so all that stuff we read from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they've never read that. Or if they have, they're just now reading it for the first time in their lives. And so they have a different cultural milieu when it comes to sex. And let me give a little bit of that. Um, Sometimes our view of ancient Greek sexual culture is that uh, because they weren't Jews, everybody was just having sex with everybody, and that is just not true. Um, marriage was a big deal just like other cultures you don't sleep with another man's wife that's just wrong it's just wrong you're stealing from him but there were some things going on in Greek culture that you would have never seen in ancient Israel for instance 
people who were wealthy and owned slaves. It was very common to use young slaves, especially young boys and in some cases young girls, for sexual pleasure. This is known to your wife. Um, It is just kind of a status symbol. I own these people for my own pleasure. Um, And so it it was, you know, you sold them to other people who might like that too. Um, And so some people have ventured that when we see words here like men stealers, they're talking about owning slaves for sexual purposes. Perhaps that's it, perhaps it's not. But what's interesting about that, when you think about that kind of culture and culture accepting that kind of thing, is this. Um, To have sex with that young boy who you owned was different than an Israelite because this didn't bring dishonor like it would have to an Israelite. This was a sense of honor. I am somebody who can own another human being for my... Now, these people... Now, hear this. I want this very clear. These people who were having sex with young boys, they were not... They would not have considered themselves anything but heterosexual, although they didn't even have those terms. The assumption in their society was everyone is heterosexual. You do this because you can. Because you are somebody. Because you get to. And this was a part of their life. Uh, the people who did this had numerous children. Uh, they often had several wives. This was a part of their culture. As a matter of fact, it was a part of culture that some people longed to. Many of us have heard, for instance, in the uh, Middle Ages, when food was very scarce in Europe, that being plump was considered a sign of status, right? You got enough money to have food. It was a sign of status. People from the Middle Ages, if they came to where we are now and saw everybody on diets and going to gyms, would be like, what in the world are y'all doing? You're losing the one good thing you have, right? You got enough calories and almost nobody else does. We have a very different culture. But for them, being plump was a status symbol. It showed you were somebody with means. Being able to have sexual pleasure at your whim was a symbol of status and honor. In much the same way that showing that your daughter, you kept your daughter a virgin, was a sense of status and honor for an ancient Israelite. And so Paul has to write, he is a Jew coming out of that culture, if that's how we think about sex, and now he's writing to a culture that finds honor in sex in a very different way. And he's got to deal with it and figure it out. Which is why you see the New Testament talk differently in some ways about sexual immorality than the Old Testament because it's a different culture. The Bible does not lay out a set of rules 
for this is how you conduct yourself sexually in every situation. It doesn't. It constantly goes back to what does it mean to be a person of God with your body in the culture in which you live? Which is going to look different than if you lived at another time or place. Now, when I got through all of that, I ended up at a couple of conclusions. Now, we're going to get to big conclusions in a couple of weeks, but here's a couple of conclusions I came to, and I came to these conclusions about five years ago. The first con- conclusion was this. If we view the Bible as a rule book straight from God, in other words, this is exactly what God said, and these are rules that God gives directly to us, then you can make a case that men should not have sex with men. But if this is a rule book straight from God, then we must also be willing to make a case that married people need to also not have sex while the wife is menstruating. And we need to start thinking about what we are going to do when someone dies childless and has a younger brother. Because these are also rules that are there. Now, I don't say that to be funny. I really don't. I'm not putting down the Bible or putting down those rules. Um, I say that to say we have to take it serious if we're going to take it serious. Um, Paul... um, was celibate, right? Not married. Um, and if you read in Paul, Paul believed that was a gift, right? I wish everybody could be like me, but this is a gift from God. I, not everybody is meant to be celibate. Now, if you read the Old Testament, celibacy was just wrong. No, your job was to procreate and have children and continue the names in Israel. That is your, that is your primary job in life. Read Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and you'll know that's your job. And Paul's like, no, nah, it's not my job. I'm doing things differently. I've come to a different conclusion about what honors God with my body. And then... That same person who came to a different conclusion than his culture had often come to then goes into other cultures and says, we got to figure this out over here. What honors God and what honors Jesus and what does it mean to be a disciple with our bodies in this culture? How do we make that work? And so, uh, at some point I decided for me, and just for me, that the Bible is not a rule book. Straight from God. But that leaves me with a lot of questions and not near as many answers. But one of the conclusions I came to based on all of that was that I personally do not feel comfortable condemning someone for their attraction based on these few very cultural verses. That's just me. I had to fall back on something else. And I made a decision that the thing I was going to fall back on would not be trying to just, oh, 
night and day, study these few little words and try to figure out what they mean and how they apply and do they apply and you know, how did Paul mean this, but how would he mean it for us? And there's a, you can do that. And people are doing that. And that's great. But I made a decision that based on my reading of how the Bible, and by the way, I say the Bible, the Bible's a library of books. So even different books handle sexuality differently. But how the Bible in general handles sexuality and how it handles sexual morality I had to fall back on something more solid than those few verses. And for me, that meant I must move away from trying to figure out what rule should apply when towards what does Jesus want from me now? What does Jesus want from me right here, right now? I think that the Bible, and even some of these verses can be useful in doing that. But, as we talked about the last time, there is no verse that is going to definitively answer all of our questions and concerns and confusions. At some point, we must fall back on the idea that grace is greater, that love is stronger, That the way of Jesus is bigger than figuring out a verse from Leviticus and staking our claims on that. And so, that's where I ended up with sexuality, and I use that word very loosely, and the Bible. And I use it loosely because next week, we're going to talk intensely about sexual identity because the Bible does not. It just doesn't. Uh, The Bible is concerned with mores. It is concerned with honor. It is concerned like that. But the idea, I'll just plant this in your head, would never have crossed Paul's mind that someone could be in their very nature attracted to someone of the same gender. He would have never conceived that. He wrote in the world and the culture in which he knew and tried to proclaim what does Jesus following look like in this time and place. And I think our job is to jump in with Paul and say, thank you, Paul, for the great work you did in trying to figure out what following Jesus looks like in your time and place. And now we're going to do the same thing for our time and place. You may have noticed there is one particular verse about that is often used when we talk about same-sex attraction that I've not touched on tonight. And that is Romans 1. And that's where we're going to begin next time. Because I think Romans 1 helps us begin to see what it means to think about culture, science, what we know about human beings in our world, the way Paul was trying to in his world. And so we will, get, we will begin with Romans 1 next time. Um, obviously, I hope this goes without saying, uh, I, I am not, um, this isn't like a, hey, I've settled the matter. Right? 
I have, oh, definitively, we'll just put this out on the internet and the world will be all is one. Um, that's not how this works. And so, obviously, I'm open to questions and I'm open to rethinking and I'm open to trying to understand. Um, but this is my journey. Uh, and this is how I got where I am. And next week, uh, we'll take the third turn in that journey. Um, and beginning with Romans 1, how do we look at our culture and what we know about human beings and what we hear from people who are same-sex attracted? And how do we listen to those voices and begin coming to a place of understanding as we try to follow Jesus in this world?